Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. So we should definitely pause, take a breath, and figure out our options because they, they always exist. And we are really excited to have uh, Sister uh, Sina, is it Jim, Jim Gimo? How do you pronounce your last name? You got, you, you got it. Oh, for real? Wow. <laughs> Just the way it looks. I'm so shocked. Yeah, Jim Gimo. <laughs> yeah, super. And, and we, are, we are really excited to have you on because you are like a super superhero. Um, you know, the, to sort of honor International Women's uh, History Month, but also to continue our conversation about the Oromo people, and something is happening right now, um, you know, in in the area uh, of Africa known as Ethiopia um, that I know you want to tell folks about. But let me just read your bio really quickly. Uh, you are an Oromo American, born and raised in Ethiopia. Uh, from a very young age, you felt grieved over the injustices you saw perpetuated against the Oromo people. Uh, particularly against the Roma women. I wanted to help you study political science as an undergraduate in public health and public administration as a graduate student. While at the University of Illinois, uh, you were a graduate uh, student senator at large and treasurer for the African Student Association, organization, sorry. Uh, you are a recipient of many awards, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship, um, uh, Mithany M. Young Fellowship, and key player for House Resolution 128 that enabled change in Ethiopia in 2017. Throughout your career, uh, you have founded and represented numerous student and non-student organization, organizations. You work as you worked as or you work as <laughs> environmental health specialist too, and you are the co-founder and executive director of Aromo Legacy Leadership and Advocacy Association, OLLAA, formerly known as Coalition of Aromo Advocates for Human Rights and Democracy. Yeah, it's a lot easier to remember OLA 
<laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so so the website is Ola O L L A A dot O R G and some things are happening right now that people need to be aware of so that you can tweet and let your legislators know um about some um urgent events presently in uh Aroma Land um and in Ethiopia. So welcome, Sina, and I'm going to let you just sort of take it away um, right now with regards to some current actions. So what's happening right now that um, you, your organization uh, is letting people know about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much again, uh, Wanda. My name is Sina Zimjimo, and you definitely pronounced uh, my last name correct. My first name, my American friends call me Sina, and I got to the point that I call myself Sina, until I went to, you know, Oromia about two years ago, and I introduced myself. They were like, your name is Nasina, and I kind of forgot that it was actually Sena. It's Nasina. Sena. <laughs> but, you know, you're close, close enough. <laughs> no, no, Sena, is, if that's your name, I want to say it right. That's not too difficult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, thank you for the opportunity, Wanda, because uh, it's not often that we – get a chance to, uh, the world hears about the Romo people. The Romo people are indigenous people, one of the very few people, Romo, Romo people are compared to like the Mayas with their uh, advancements uh, generations ago, centuries ago. They, are, they have their own faith. They're not like um, 5 million. They are over 55 million strong. Uh, Oromo occupy, you know, vast 65% of Ethiopian GDP comes from Oromia. 60% of Ethiopian population reside in Oromia. 60% of Ethiopian populations are Oromos, but yet they occupy less than 20% of bureaucracy. They, they large, the largest ethnic group in the country, by that's twice almost the largest, but all other ethnic groups, yet they, you do not, you cannot speak Oromo to get a, to get a job. You have to speak the Amharic language. Uh, Oromo have always felt um, that kind of a second citizen, second citizen to in Ethiopia. That for us to feel like Ethiopian, we must adapt this uh, Amhara culture, Amhara language, Amhara faith, which is the Orthodox. Uh, even though. Uh, Orthodox is not for Amhara, but you have to be Orthodox to be part of it. But if you're not practicing the Orthodox, if you really don't speak Amharic, I remember growing up, and you know, this is my second time being on your show, growing up, like, I'm too beautiful to be Oromo, or at least to claim Oromo, you know, that how come I don't speak Amharic language? Because someone like me should be speaking. So I am a voice for such a people that uh, today Ethiopia is zoomed in. Everybody's talking about the war in Tigray. Everybody's talking about the genocide that's happening, and uh, but the truth is genocide has been happening on Oromos for years. Not even right now that the uh, the current prime minister Wanda even before that. That's how we end up here in hundreds of thousands around the world in millions of refugees in just two weeks ago in Yemen, uh, Wanda. Over 400 refugees were burned alive by Houthi. Uh, a Yemen uh, organization or group that did not like refugees in their land, or for whatever reason, want to make statement to the UN and to the US, they burned them alive. And uh, Ethiopian government didn't even send the condolences; they didn't lower a flag. Ethiopian media, over 100 of Ethiopian media, one nobody talked about it. 400 people burned alive. They are protesting for two weeks nonstop. Nobody's talking about it. 
So, I mean, so this is Ola.org. We talk, you know, we provide resources for the community to reach out to their congressman and their senator. We educate American, and not just Olomos, but just American people like you, that you care about human rights, that you feel like almost have a right to exist, almost a bone. They're from there. They have no other place to go. They are burned in a place like Yemen. There are over 30,000 almost in Saudi's prison for over a year because the government said they don't have the capacity to take the refugees back. So like, if you feel like these issues, as a human rights issue, or issue is just like anybody else's issue, that, you know, Oromo rights matter when, you know, we protest. I grew up in the U.S., uh, so I grew up with, you know, a lot of African-Americans, and we're probably going to talk about my book. I wrote about, you know, African-Americans seven years ago because of my experience of what I, what I saw, but I'm not going to read about that part. I'm going to read about the woman because this is a march. But I don't know, there's, there's so much uh, going on, but I definitely ask our listeners to kind of check Ola, Ola.org, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, and let us know, you know, if there's anything that you can do to help us. Let us know if we can come and talk to you, to your community. Right, because um, President President Biden is, um, is, is he in um, East Africa presently, or he's... Because I, I thought something uh, was happening around. Yes, yes, I'm glad you, yeah. So President Biden appointed Senator Kuhn from Delaware. Senator Kuhn and President, President Biden are obviously very close friends to go to Ethiopia because the situation in Ethiopia is getting drier by the day. Ethiopia is moving towards civil war every single day, more and more. This Friday, the Amhara regional government, along with Amhara militias and along with the FANO, which is the Amhara youth movement, they are accused of genocide in Tigray. And the, the Biden guy, who is Senator Kuhn, who went to Ethiopia over the weekend, talked to you know, the administration over the weekend, uh, is calling for the Amhara regional uh, government to withdraw from Tigray. And this group are lined up with the same ethnic cleansing in Oromia. They're killing that group called Wallo Oromos. These are uh, uh, a special zone of Oromos within Amhara. And, and this did, the TPLF did this. Wallo is part of Oromia, but they, they gave it to us as part of Amhara, and then they took the other part to, to, to the region. But yes, the Senator Kuhn is in Ethiopia. But you see, the, the sad thing is one that is that Senator Kuhn is not talking about the genocide, the ethnic cleansing, the targeting of Oromo, the 50,000 Oromos in prison who's been in prison for the last nine months. He's not talking about that. He's talking about Tigran, which we do think that post um, 100% was happening in Tigran, was have been happening in Tigran. It's nothing short of genocide. It's just genocide, the Amhara, the Eritrean government, and the Tigran government got together. They wanted to wipe out the Tigran community to uh, bring TPLF under control. And the same group accused of genocide are right now committing ethnic cleansing in Wollong. But uh, Senator Kuhn, who, who was just in Ethiopia, did not mention anything about Wollong. So that kind of just really makes us sad. And, and Biden, it took us falling apart slowly, but Ethiopia is not like Rwanda in 1995 when you know, a few million people got hurt. Ethiopia holds over 115 million population. So 
So you can imagine this country is about to go civil war. It's going to take not just Ethiopia, not just even Horn of Africa. It will take the whole of world because you can have millions of refugees going to Europe. Europe don't want any refugees. You can have millions of refugees in the Middle East. Middle East hates. Uh, I mean, terrorize our people, burn our young women who are made there, rape them, and they get away because they don't even have the law to protect their women. They can care less to protect another a black woman. So I don't know if I answered your question, Wanda. Wow. Yeah, 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 that, that's a whole lot. So are there any, um, you might have said it, but I might have got, I might have lost it in, in, in the narrative. Is there anything that you want people to um, to do right now, and if so, um, tell them where the information is <laughs> that they need to be reading or tweeting, you know, right now about sort of what's happening uh, in in uh, Ethiopia with the Oromo people. Because I I know that last year the the election, the democratic election, was suspended, so you all didn't have one. Is that correct? Like the president that's, is still the president, but yeah, it's, Ill, it's illegal. So, uh, sorry, did you finish? Yeah, I'm finished. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Sorry, I thought I'd catch you, but uh, let me. That's what. Please ask me that question again. Like you know, you're listening to this radio, and if what I'm saying to you resonate with you in any way that you want to learn or you want to make a difference about our people who are indigenous, who are being attacked because of their faith, and almost had their own African indigenous religion before, you know, the Islam and Christianity came, and almost attacked it because of their natural resource, and, they, and they're not, almost don't reside in Amara region, but you have millions of Amara reside in Oromia, and yet the, the Amara regional government goes to Oromia, in, uh, in the name of protecting the Amara civilian, they're committing ethnic cleansing in the federal government works along with the Amara regional government. Amara regional government is the one that is accused of genocide in Tigray. Uh, that perhaps you know the UN is calling for, uh, you know, asking and requesting and demanding for this government, which I think should be labeled as a terrorist government organization be pulled out of Tigray, they should be pulled out of uh, Oromia, and they should be kept in their own region. That is what the Constitution says. Um, but if you any of these things care uh, make sense to you, I urge you to please write to your congressman and write to your senator. There is a Senate resolution that came out about three weeks ago. It is called SRS, SRES which is Semtraz or SRAS 97. You can find all of this information on our website at ola.org. Ola is O-L-L-A-A.org. And we're asking the senators, if you're going to talk about Ethiopia, because right now the resolution is between only Ethiopian government and Tigray. Tigray makes 5% of Ethiopian population. Their life matters. We care and we support and we they should be accountable for ever doing this. And those people in diaspora protesting in support of genocide should be accountable. But Oromo make up fifty percent of Ethiopian population and their voice is not being heard. The Senate resolution ex- uh, exclusively left out the issue in Oromia. The killing in Oromia 
had also murdered the wife's imprisonment, but collected imprisonment. They left all of the opposition have left out of the the election, but yet the best plan to have election in June. In two months, they want to have election. There is no opposition running against them, at least in Romania and Tigray. In Tigray, there's a war going on. In the northern part of the country, Sudan had invaded Ethiopia, and Oromia is under state of emergency. Under all these circumstances, Ethiopia is planning to have an election. Can this election be fair and free? I don't think it's possible to have an election in two years where the opposition parties are in prison, when there is state of emergency, when the country is at war, when there is a foreign invasion. The U.S. government should not and should send a clear message that such an election would only exacerbate already fragile human rights crisis in Ethiopia, but it should call for dialogue. And that dialogue, that investigation that is only exclusive to Tigray, needs to take place across Ethiopia. So if you care about any of these things, please uh, reach out to your congressman and your senator. Or if you are on any human rights organization, uh, please write about Doromos. What about Oromos? What about the human rights violation in Oromia? What about the ethnic cleansing is being done by Amara regional government? who are accused of genocide in Tigran right now, uh, you know, uh, committing same acts in one law. So if you, you know, want to make a difference or want to be a voice, if you are a high school teacher and looking for a project to do, uh, if you are a, a church organization wanting to really voice for oppressed people, I urge you to go to Ola.org and learn about it and help us uh, become voice, uh, Wanda. Right. Thank you. Um, I... Uh I was um, looking at your book. I ordered a copy, but it won't be here till Friday. But there's quite a bit online. Um, you know how you can how Google does the books, and and you can uh, look at different parts. So I was able to um, sort of look at the different uh, sections, uh, the in between, um, the story of African Oromo. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Yeah, Roman women, women, and the American experience, and um, yeah, you need to update it. It's uh, it came out in 2014. You might want to do a <laughs> a part two because <laughs> uh, a lot has I, I happened, do, you know, in that. seven I years. I have another book that. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you do? Yeah. It's- uh, well, yeah, I have another book that's supposed to be published in 2019. It is called mm-hmm. uh, House Resolution 128, you know, mm-hmm. the journey. But mm-hmm. but then 2020, we have, a, you know, war. Abi brought a war, so I kind of just left it on the shelf. But it's, it's, it was completed, so it's going to be two volumes. The first volume mm-hmm. is from 2016, the journey from 2016 to 2019, uh, you know, mm-hmm. when how I met the British and Prime Minister, the prime minister came to power, and mm-hmm. so there's volume two. I'm going to talk about what Abi did after he came to power on the Romo people's back, you know. So yeah, mm-hmm. so this book is old, but I do have a, an, another one that is just not released, but it's been ready for the last two weeks, two years. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> publish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. And I was looking through it. Uh, you have some really wonderful, um, a wonderful section about the history. It's quite extensive. And I'm like, well, she can't read that. 
because we don't have <laughs> enough time. <laughs> so I, I definitely suggest you know, that people buy I, your book. Hmm? I want a part that I want to really read to you. I want to read about the woman, but I want to I want to read about the cover page. It's only one page. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked. Um, I think is that is that your intro? It's really nice. And then I like the section on your mom, on Amina. Um, that's that that was her name in parentheticals. That was really really lovely. And then I think I, there was another section where you were thanking folks and thanking your Chicago family. And I'm like, that's really good too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I I really want you to um I want to make sure we have enough time for you to talk about your mom, who um sounds like she was your rock, uh because your dad was a political prisoner and I don't know how long he was, um you know in prison, but he was um you know locked up for a while and your mom was the one sort of holding things up and holding things together, um I'm sure you know probably with with other family but she was the one. And so I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that because people a lot of times don't think about the impact, um, you know, these political movements have on on family. And then your father is an ancestor now, and I believe um, uh, your one one of your sisters is also an ancestor because you mentioned her. I think you call her James. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, those, so those are some of the things I was reading. And so you can weave it any way you want. <laughs> but go ahead and read okay. what you said you wanted to share first. Yeah, I definitely want to read that, but I wanted to comment on what you say about my mom. So her birth mm-hmm. name is Shube. That's her name. And her better on, she became Amina. And mm-hmm. my sister is, you know, her name is Jamila, but I, since I was a kid, I've always called her Dems. And then I don't know how I end up, but um, I, think, um, I think all of our moms, Majority of our moms, I mean, the way I describe moms, I honestly, the best and the short ways is their God. <laughs> their God, mm-hmm. um, that, that they they not only give us so much, they actually, in the process, lose themselves to make us who we are, to, to save us. And nothing would give them more joy than our happiness, that our success, that, that we are happy, is their happiness. So to me, so my mom, you know, she doesn't really know English very well. She's been here too long, but she just refused to learn English. But she doesn't want to go back to Africa either. She likes America so much, I can tell you that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, she's, yeah, she's a rock star because my dad was in and out of prison for so long, my whole family. And uh, not only because of his political situation, she's just an educated, resilient, source of uh, unconditional love that even when you are so wrong and do so bad, always just there to pull you, you know, especially during you know, teenager, a, a very difficult time for a lot of people. And those days are the days that you need unconditional love. And so she means, she means to me like, like a guy. So I do worship her, but I don't do a good job of telling her because we fight often. <laughs> But let me read for you the the, the one I wanted to read to you two sections. Uh, the okay. first one is the, the cover uh, description one, down, and it means a lot to me. And then uh, the other one is about where March and I'm a woman. So I'll talk a little bit about maybe just about half page from that section. 
Mm-hmm. So for sure. those people who for those people who are you know who can Google on uh, on just Google the book, you know, you mentioned that the title is called The In Between the story of African or more women in the American experience. So if you're looking at that cover, you will see what I'm talking about. Because this one page, I literally described the, uh, the book cover. So this, and it is like right on page two of the book itself. So the title is called uh, Cover Description. At the heart of this cover is a woman in tears, young girl dressed in a almost traditional garb, the sycamore, or audacity symbolizing justice, prisoners in chain, the United States and the Oromo flag, and the map of Oromo, or Oromia map. As the title states, the in-between is not just about single individual life experience, but rather something far more substantial, an identity and hidden facts about African history in the bureaucracy. On seven, I'm sitting in, in the heart of Oromia, soaked in blood, lost in thought, crying for pain, endured for so long. One of, one of the most important things on this cover is map of Oromia. The physical representation of a map indicates the existence of one society and its precise geographical location. This map of Oromia not only illustrates how vast Oromo land is, but also how far Oromo people extend beyond the shore of modern state of Ethiopia. We, the Oromo people, whether we are in Ethiopia, in Kenya, or elsewhere, are bound by one culture, common language, and religion. Even though I have not covered in depth the history of Kenyan Oromos, we must understand that we share history that plus within every fiber of our being. Moreover, why the color green that why the color green has a very special significance in many cultures. To Oromos it represents youth, nature and vitality. The second but most important aspect of the cover are the flags. While the American flag represents what I currently live, my respect and devotion to the United States of America the Oromo flag, on the other hand, represents far more secret meaning that the world should know. Thanks to Dr. Kwe Kumsam, when I first learned the meaning of this flag, a light just went on. It was like nothing I've experienced before. Also, while I'm certain you'll be moved and changed forever, as I was, by understanding the true meaning of this flag, the order to which the color was placed has, been greater, has greater significance. It is absolutely important that this order be maintained to capture the essence of the original intended, intended meaning. The correct and true Oromo flag is white on the bottom, red in the middle, black on top. This flag is known as a Baghdad flag. It is absolutely important to not mix the order of the flag. It would be discretion uh, to Romo people and to our way of life to rearrange the color of the flag. Unlike the usual association of the color white with brightness in the future, the Romos, to the Romos, the color white represents the past, the ashes of our forefathers, and those who passed before us. The color red being 
partially, uh, uh, practically universal to everyone, represent blood that has been shed. Finally, and most importantly, it is the color black. Contrary to Western association with evil, ugliness, and backward, the color black actually represents the future that now God in beauty. The future can only be black because it is but because if it was white, we would know exactly what future holds. The future is unknown. The future as unknown can only be defined by colored blood because we do not know or we do, we do not know what waits us in room covered completely in darkness. While we almost think all shades and colors are beautiful, the height the height of beauty is defined by darkness. In conclusion. This cover represents African women, their stories, the struggle of women consumed by painful thoughts, the hurts often caused by those near to us and by those who know nothing about us. Also, it's about reviving history buried beneath powerful countries, building identity that once was taboo, remembering those who died in vain, and about young people with so much hope in tomorrow, and about the country once existed, but today at the mercy of our enemy. So that's my book cover. It's a little bit so long, but I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I, I read that. I, 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 I like that too. Yeah, you're, it was that was really beautiful. It just sort of, um, sort of frames, you know, philosophically, um, <clears throat> you know, your your position, but also, um, you know, sort of who. Who your people are, you know, um, on a, on a soul kind of level, yeah, yeah, that's that is really beautiful, and <clears throat> and I was just thinking about you know the future is black and and the whole idea of reframing darkness, you know, um, as as a positive, you know, because uh, the West the West um, sort of frames darkness as ignorance as backwardness, <laughs> you know, um, when when you think about how the origin of the universe even is dark. <laughs> you think about the womb, the womb is dark. <laughs> things don't grow, you know. I mean things grow in darkness. Um and and that's where things are rejuvenated too. And I was just thinking, you know, sort of the whole idea of um of the heart of darkness, <laughs> you know, and and being negative uh, as well and the heart of darkness being really positive. And and before you read the next <clears throat> the next selection, I wanted to know if um if you wanted to talk a little bit more about um you know what it means you know to be an aroma woman, and uh, and and then <clears throat> I also wanted to give you an opportunity to give us a report back on on how the national protest went last week on the nineteenth. Like, was there a good showing? Like, is there any tangible you know sort of Response that you can monetize, uh, insofar as not monetize for real, but monetize insofar as any promises, um, you know, from legislatures uh, to do something about about the uh, you know the murder of all those people. Um, yes, uh, I definitely want to thank you for actually uh, to have the conversation for read the next one uh, about this issues you're bringing me back and you know our listeners back into to take some action. So I do appreciate for keeping you know adding this thing in there. But let me also add about the color black a little bit more. Uh, uh, I think you know I try to say in my writing. 
But mm-hmm. we Oromo people call our, our God before Islam, before Christian, we have our own faith. We have our own democracy system. But it was all, you know, a lot of writing according to, like, if in a religion to which I follow myself, a lot of the monotistic religion, most of history comes from Oromo. You know, it comes, it has a lot of similarity, our ethnic, uh, indigenous uh, way of uh, practicing, of worshiping God. Uh, but it's so funny that right now, 98% of my people are, you know, monotistic. They are either Christian or Muslim. And even though, you know, both, you know, the Bible and the Quran have a lot of similarity with my original, our original faith, a lot of young people, a lot of people, because of the teaching and perhaps because of the way the type of teaching and manifesting, they see this indigenous as backward. Oh, it's a dark age. But God can only be black because if God was, if we were in a room that is full of light, we know what's in the room. But if that room is no light, we don't know what's in that room. That's what the Oromo means. God can only be black, be black because it's unknown. The future can only be black because if the future is white, we would know what's inside there. The future is only black. It can only be black because it's the unknown. That's why we call it black God. It's the unknown. It's the, it's, you know, like you, you used a lot of good examples. The wound, everything is dark, but... There is such a negative association with the dark skin, dark things, and we grow up thinking that, oh, he is so dark inside. Oh, man, he's evil. He's black evil. So we are, we are mentally uh, constrained or mentally brought up to think blackness, backwardness, lightness is as a future. You know what I'm saying? I see the light. I mean, man, the light is, uh, in normal culture is the past. It is, it's the ashes when people, when building, when things are burned, they turn into white. It's the ash. So I do appreciate that, you know, you brought that back again. And uh, when I learned about first, it was like really was moving. And I changed forever. The future can only be black because I'm not. And my people, you know, there's a lot of Roman people who are followers of Christian and Muslim that they think, you know, their indigenous faith is somehow backward and dark because we worship black God. There is no black God. There is no white God. There is, you know, and we understand that very well. But what we're saying is that when you define, if you're going to define God to be a man, because a lot of people say, like, he is this, he's a savior, he and he. I don't hear people talking about she. You know, she is the, you know, the, the mother of the universe, woman. Is half of the world population, and she's a mother of the other half. She gave birth to the other half. Women, if there's anybody close to God or should be God, as I think as that. But um, the other thing that you kind of raised was about the 19th uh, protest that we had. I tried to mention earlier was that um, over 400 refugees, over 90% of them are almost, were born in, uh, in, in, in prison. This, this refugee was just put in prison where the UN and IOM, uh, Immigration Organization, knows about it. There's about 700 of, the, 700 of them, 700 of them, and uh, there was a fight because we interviewed over 39 people, and these people are survivors. What happened? So they know what happened. You know, the guards, they keep asking for money. They decide that the condition they were being kept is bad, so they're going to go on hunger, on hunger strike. They went on hunger strike for two days, and they tried to force them to get out of hunger strike. And when they wouldn't, the guard literally just said, like, you know what, I'm going to bomb you. 
So he went on, he said, I'll be back in 30 minutes. He came back in less than 30 minutes and went up. He's, according to the survivors, he went on the top and he threw a bomb that, you know, according to uh, our people, they're saying that 530 people, but at least uh, about 400. But, you know, the sad thing is the one that, that 400 people died, 30 people died. Some, you know, some, I think BBC report says uh, 70, I don't know. But it, they're trying to minimize the number to like, oh, it's just 30 people die. Normally when 30 people die, 30 refugees die, the UN will, yes, they did condemn it, but that is, they're not doing sufficient investigation. There's been protests for three weeks by mothers on the sunny desert protesting in front of the UN office, and the UN have not done anything. They have not relocate them to a safer location. They have not, they came and talked to them one time. Iron Man is not doing sufficient. And above all, what kills me and what kills us is that they took in government. You know, it's trying to hide this happen. The local media, they have 100 medias. They all never talk about this uh, hundreds of people who got massacred in Yemen uh, that we, the diaspora, we are refugees ourselves are the ones protesting, raising awareness, talking about this, writing to the UN, writing to Amnesty International, writing to Human Rights Watch, who in Human Rights Watch put out a very nice report. Amnesty International have not done that. There's a lot of organizations. This many people got murdered on a broad daylight. The U.S. government have not acknowledged it. They know that. The UN have put out a statement. They did not acknowledge any of this uh, brutality, any of this uh, criminal activity. So, uh, so the protests were, you know, was held in a very many uh, states, including in Canada. They had in Canada and the U.S. and the Europe as well. They did a little bit, but you know, the, the, we are so. Here's the thing, Rwanda. So much has been happening to almost for so long, and we are becoming almost like when 400 people die. Like, okay, you know, yeah, let's just go protest, you know, a little bit. That if a thousand people die, yeah, a little bit would be more shot. Like, the number, like, just on Friday, the Amara regional government is committing, Amara regional government, accused of genocide in Sigra, is committing ethnic cleansing in, in Wallon. Right now, my people have moved from uh, Yemen, where 400 people lost their lives, to Wallon. And the world have never caught on. You know, everybody's talking about Sigra. And we're not unhappy, we're happy for Sigra. But what about Oromo? Does Oromo life matter? So I think uh, the protest in terms of what you asked, you know, was it successful? Was it, you know, uh, did we get something out of it? The community organized that protest. They are a small community of people, but the vast majority of community, they feel, you know, uh, kind of defeated. But they can't feel defeated because we are, or they are the only people we have speaking for Roma people. The government, Abi claimed, they took and time with their claim, oh, I'm a Roma, and what he knew with this, Ambassadors like I represent Oromo, but he's been committing ethnic cleansing along with Amhara Regional Force. They've been removing and killing, and just they don't even anymore bury the bodies. They just throw them for scavengers to eat it. The short is that the the rally was good, you know, it mobilized and raised awareness, uh, but it's not sufficient. I think we we want our Americans, uh, brothers, American uh, organization, human rights organization to speak up, and um, I'm ashamed that Amnesty International, you know, they produce so many reports from Tigra because it's popular, because the media is talking about it, and they haven't put out any report about 
uh, Oromia. So they select, uh, selectively pick and choose, you know, what's popular in the, re the report on it, but that should not be the case. There's a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm so, so happy. There's so much going on. It's like you cannot get out yeah. of that, Amanda. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm so happy that, you know, considering how much is happening and um, and how busy you are, that you have, you know, sort of carved out, you know, um, some significant time to share share with us this morning. Really, really, really appreciate it. Um so um so you were you had something else you wanted to um to read to us from your book, I believe. Is that correct? I did. I wanted to read just a little bit, you know, as you know, smashes so much agony we're going through. This is still March and as a woman we came a long way. Uh, to, you know, I, I think, I don't know who said that There was some quote I read that they say, first they gave us one day, then they gave us the whole month, then next all, you know, is they're going to give us the whole year. <laughs> so as a woman. <laughs> so I didn't yeah. say it, but that was really nice. And I'll, so this is a month, <laughs> and it's a woman month, so I would like to just read maybe uh, a page or half a page from it. So this title right. is uh, it's a chapter seven of my you know the in between book. It is mm -hmm. um, the title is called Winnie Mandela and the African Woman. This chapter. Yeah, before be, before before you read about Winnie Mandela, um, I uh, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about you know sort of you know why um, Winnie Mandela's life and work you know really resonates with you, and I think about. You know the South African women. Um, uh, you know, with regards to uh, resisting, uh, carrying the past, and um, and just you know the mothers. I mean, these are not like young African women. These are older women, like your grandmother kind of mother. <laughs> um, you know that are that are refusing. You know to be. Um, uh, enslaved, you know, by by these uh, by the uh, the you know um, the colonial uh, I guess philosophy around around you know subjugation and ownership of Africa and African people, and um, you know like when you struck a woman, you struck a rock, you know that. That thing, right? And and you know, and and Mama, you know, we've got Mary McCabe, you know, Mama Africa, and then we have we have Winnie Mandela, Mama mm -hmm. Africa, and we have other Mama Africas, like your mom is a Mama Africa, um, but you know, like like no thanks um, for all of her sacrifice, you know, being under house arrest, um, you know, like her husband was in prison and she was under house arrest and. And, you know, and the negative media campaign and then what happened with their relationship, you know, it was all political. And 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 yet, you know, she still kept her dignity. Um, so anyway, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about about this woman. Um, yeah. And the story still hasn't been told uh, in a, a more a real public way about who she is. You know, she still she still her life is still slandered in in the western media similar to the way 
uh, leaders, leaders, and we haven't even talked about the vaccine, right? Um, and you know, COVID nineteen and the coronavirus and people getting inoculated or not inoculated. That's not quite the word for it. Getting this vaccine and then the African nations that are saying, "Hold up, the science is not reflected in what you're saying." So we're going to hold up for a minute and just watch the signs. And then those particular leaders, you know, they're dropping dead or disappearing. That's another story. So anyway, I just want to give you an opportunity before you share. Um, just talk about this woman a little bit and then read it. You know, Wanda, you raised, I mean, you said a lot of the things that was going on in my mind, um, that uh, Winnie Mandela if this woman, and the reason why I, I used her as a catalyst or as a, as a, to show the, the African woman a challenge, you know, like mm-hmm. you're, if you're brave, it's like, oh, look at her. She wants to be like a man. You know what I'm saying? Like there's nothing African woman can do that is good enough. If you're too strong, who should be like, she wants to be a man. Look at her. She wants to be a man. Who does she think she is? If she's a weak, she's a, she's a counter nothing. She's just, she's just a, you know, she's just a, uh, I don't know, a machine that will produce or produce a baby. So it's really not um, a place, and I wanted to use Winnie as an example, and I'm glad you're actually talking about this because when I think of Winnie Mandela, and let's be honest, uh, Mandela was, you know, an icon. He was in prison for 27 years, and he did mm-hmm. nothing for the 27 years when he was in prison. I mean, yes, he's a leader, I have no doubt, and I, I, I celebrate that. And but and, you know I'm not even mentioned. So there were other African and uh, uh, South African, the Africaners. What what is the economic status? What really changed for them? Yeah, Africa's free. Yeah, yes, South Africa is free. Yes, South Africa is democratic, so-called democratic. But today the system is still colonial system, where the 80 to 90 percent of the South African population are under poverty. And if that is what freedom what democracy look like, we don't. We as Africans don't want that for Ethiopia. We don't want that. We don't want to be free when we remain poor for the rest of our life. We don't want that kind of freedom. We don't want the African, South African freedom. So the way, to me, Winnie Mandela was when, man, I talk about this in writing, but I'm, I'm going to say, uh, say this, is that when Mandela was in prison, not because he chose to be leader, he was visionary, he's obviously brilliant, we love him, we respect him, but when he was in prison, she held the ground. South Africa is free because of William Mandela. But mm-hmm. somehow, you know, That's yes, right. he's in prison for 27 years in prison, he didn't do nothing. That's the truth. But she not only raised his children, she not only moved the community, she was actually the leader. She didn't sleep. She fought. She made necessary hard decisions. That if I was in her position, I would do the same thing. She made the necessary decision. There is no, there is no revolution that comes by being nice. You, you have to decide if you're going to be a leader for revolution. You have to make some bad decisions. It's not because you're bad, but sometimes you don't have to take an action that's necessary to save the million. To save the meaning, you might have to kill a few people. And that is the name of well, this technology, this science. How many people die in science during the uh, trial when they try? I don't see the scientists going to jail. I don't see that the scientists being told they are murdered. What happened to women? She did exactly what any revolutionary would do. 
But at the end, instead of being celebrated, instead of South Africa and the world saying thanks for winning, she's a criminal. She got charged with the criminal for murdering a youth. And murdering a youth. And I don't support obviously killing anybody. But nevertheless, I do know that revolution is not a beautiful thing. War is not a joke when you just feel like, oh, I'm fighting. No, you have to kill somebody. Somebody's going to die. Somebody has to make the sacrifice necessary for us to be free. South Africa is free because of women's contribution. Yet, at the end when South Africa became free, Winnie, of course, happened to be a woman. Of course, you know, that kind of role is not for women that she found guilty of committing a crime that instead of, instead of celebrating her, she died as an average person. I know she's not average. South Africa is free now because, mm-hmm. in my opinion, I'm not South African. My Oromo slaves are there, and ancestors who are sold as slaves live there, but they are not, um, you know, the, I don't think South Africa became free because Mandela was in prison for 27 years. It is because Winnie, Winnie is, I'll talk about in the book, is, was in solitary confinement twice as a Mandela. Mm-hmm. You know, this woman is so brave that I can't tell you one that. But anyway, for the sake of our time, I'll leave it there. But that's why I used, I wanted to use Winnie to mm-hmm. express my own mom's uh, kind of uh, strength, resilience. But at the end, yeah. she gave nothing. She gave all, she gave all to her children, to her husband, to her neighbor, to her mom and dad. And at the end, she gave nothing. It's like the society eats women until they're empty. And when they're empty, they don't say, oh, man, thank you for giving us so much. No. She's a, she was a shell to begin with. So she just forgot it. You know, I, I'm against name change, you know, when you get married and changing your husband to your name to your husband. Why? Am I property? This is the property of my dad. This is the property <laughs> of my husband. I absolutely against that. You know what I'm saying? Like, that we as a woman should be independent. If there is anybody that is leaving the world, it's a woman. We give the birth to this man. Yet we are told, controlled by the very people who brought them to this world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but let me read. Let me let me read for you. And uh, should I read it, or you want to okay. say something about that, that chapter? Okay. No, no, no. You no. Ashe. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, I know. I know. Okay. Winnie Mandela and the African, uh, African woman. This chapter bears an important place in my life. It is in this section first some of most important aspects of my future, my career path, which I dream someday I'll fulfill. I know very well I might never be what I want to be or transform as much as I would like. However, I think the best part of change is not change itself, Rather, the desire, courage, the audacity to dream about it. More importantly, it is about the courage to speak and the nerve to take the first step, wherever that may be, to speak, to talk, or to fight. I dedicate this section of my book to many mothers, abused women, the most important people, and the people that change in so many ways. Also in this section, I will write about the African women experience and their view, value, using Winnie Mandela experience as a platform. 
understanding, uh, understand that African women I know, the young girls I grew up with, the mothers that raised me, the women I have met in my life, for something in common that is profound, the African experience. Like them, I've been witness to many physical, to many physical, emotional, mental abuse that seem far too common in my community. Perhaps I can say all parts of Urum, perhaps I cannot say all parts of Urumu culture is the same as I could not say all African countries are the same. But nevertheless, for too many outcomes are uh, far too many outcomes are similar. Often. I bear witness to the abuse of women which the community know about, but no one dares to step in to stop. Please understand, there are different types of practice values in Oromia as well as in the continent of Africa. Even though you might not have seen or heard that things I, have, I might speak about are the reality I witnessed. And then I'll just add a little bit, so like, you know, so, okay, I don't want to read too much because I really do have to go very soon too, but I want that. I talk about um, Zainab, the relative that says Zainab, the African woman. I'll give you one example of the kind of abuse I refer to. There was a, there was a lady named Zainab H. Zainab, who is part of Ramon, part Somali. I met her when I was about 14, and she was a year or two older than me. She was made to match older men in his mid to late thirties. This this young lady was not only young was only young, but also petite, physically very weak. Her, her fingers were like plastic. Even if she wanted them, she could not hurt the slime. Her mother had her when she was seven months uh, seven months in her pregnancy. That prematurity was the main contribution to Zainab's physical weakness. Unlike those in America. Most premature babies in Africa do not receive the nutrition they need. If they are lucky enough to survive, they remain weak into adulthood like Zainab. Then I'll go on. It's, it's, it's a, I'll stop it there. <laughs> oh, that, wow. Um, okay, you want to stop there? <laughs> if you will need to get the book. I, I, I know, I know, I know, I really stop in a really, really bad place. I can, uh, let me see. Uh, let me. Yeah. Well, we, we well we have um we we just have like six minutes left. So if you wanted to um if you wanted to start um wrapping, you could like if there were anything was anything that you wanted to make sure that you got out. Um, why don't you give your website again? Um, and uh, <clears throat> and then I wanted you to to tell us about the song that I'm gonna have to play at the end of the show, not the end of this conversation because um, there's not enough time to play it um, since it's five minutes and almost six minutes. But but maybe you could tell us who's singing and what the song is about since I won't be able to do that (laughs) Um, because I don't don't speak the language. (laughs) So I will, you know, I will uh, like to wrap it up and then I, yeah. Finish it with mm-hmm. the the music that we I chose. Um, so if these stories resonate in any way that kind of pulls you in because of the tragedies or because human right or more rights is a human right or most are human, therefore you want to speak, or maybe because you hold a, a powerful position that you can make a difference, or because you know some or most that maybe you can you know connect them. So please visit uh, our website. 
O-L-L-A-A.org. Ola.org. And um, right now, everybody's talking about Ethiopia, about the war in Tigray, about the genocide in Tigray. There is similar genocide. Ethnic cleansing has been happening in uh, Oromia against Oromos by the same organization or government, the Amhara Regional Government, accused of committing ethnic cleansing, genocide in Tigray in Oromia. We're desperately needing for your voice to reach out to your Congress, to reach out to Amnesty International, to reach out to human rights organizations, to reach out to your church, to reach out to your school, to be a voice for the Oromo people. Save Oromos. Their life matters. The indigenous there. They are 50 plus million Oromos. Because they are large, the people think they are not uh, oppressed. Or maybe because, you know, you want to fight for underdog, which is the 5% of Ethiopian population that is Tigray. Tigray is 5% of Ethiopian population. Oromos are 50% of Ethiopian population have never held a power. Abi, the current prime minister, is the only Oromo that came to power, yet the people he attacked for the last two years is Oromos. He wanted to break Oromos. He believes he's chosen by God, and anybody that speaks against him is, you know, are getting a death sentence. So we need your voice. We need your help. And if you have any connection, please visit us, Olada, or help us connect us and be voice. There is a resolution that's coming up in the Senate. There's another one coming up in the House. Reach out to them and make sure that resolution includes all Ethiopians, not just almost all Ethiopians. Investigations shall happen in all parts of Ethiopia. National dialogue shall happen in all parts of Ethiopia. All right, thank you so much. And I will end it with the, uh, the music that I chose for you guys. This is a young woman, very young. Uh, she recently came from Ethiopia. She's an Oromo artist. Her name is Janice Dinkum. Uh, she was in a, the, the video was uh, recorded during last year's protest. We had for four months protesting and stuff. Uh, that uh, our voice was not heard. It was heard a little bit, but it was not sufficient. We still continue to protest. Uh, so uh, this, uh, her, her, the title of uh, her music says that I'm screaming, I'm screaming, and I'm tired. So basically, she, she's talking about the movement. Uh, she's talking about, you know, for someone to hear her. The music is really beautiful. The, you know, they say the video is very nice. If they watch it, if, if they say, Yannis Dinkud, it will come up. Um, so it's about the movement, it's about the struggle. And she's saying that, you know, we're screaming, I'm tired, but we must go on. I'm tired, but we must go on. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you so much, Rhonda. Oh, wow. It sounds really lovely. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing it um, uh, at the end of the program. Oh, this has been such a lovely conversation. Oh, my goodness, Asana. Um, did I say it right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and you know, your name is more, you've got like a couple of names between Senna and uh, and your last name. Um, maybe you can give us your whole name before, before you take <laughs> off. <laughs> okay. Uh, my name is, of course, it's like, by the way, the hash name is, first one is from my mom's side, the second one is from my dad's side. It's Sena, Godana, Dula, and Jamal. So it's like my father and my mom connected and my last name. Mm. Oh, wow. You really are in between, aren't you? 
Yeah. Oh, wow, wow. Well, you take good care and um and and we look forward to maybe having you on again um maybe in a few months or sooner if something needs to get out, but um definitely um you know, please send and keep sending information um my way and our way so we can let people know what's happening and uh, and what needs to happen. And uh yeah, and I'm looking forward to um uh, other episodes in your wonderful life and the life of other women and other people, Oromo people, because we don't Thank know you. enough. And and I really liked, and you didn't get a chance to talk about it, but in your book you sort of make the connection between um, Liberia and Ethiopia and what happened when formerly enslaved Africans went to Liberia and what happened there around the ruling class and sort of perpetuation of of the dominant culture here of you know outside of this country you know in Africa and it's definitely um a situation that to date um it is not good for the indigenous africans of that particular region similarly you how you make those parallels with what happened in um uh Aromia and 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 in the state of of Ethiopia and you also talk about the economy of both places and how, wow, you know, they're friends with the colonial powers of the West, yet they're so impoverished. Why is that? So you bring up a lot of interesting questions, um, you know, in your book and uh, and in your work that that have current, you know, sort of resonance. <clears throat> yeah. So, so thank you so much for the work, and thank you so much for the conversation. And, and I know people are saying, like, well, what about it? Sorry. <laughs> We we have to end it now, but of course, okay, thank you. <laughs> they can tweet thank you, you and and read read you know more about what's going on you know on your wonderful website. Okay. Um, and give it one more time, the website. O l l a a dot org. Okay, cool, super. <laughs> All right, you take good care. Bye. <laughs> Peace and blessings. <laughs> oh, good morning, Art. How are you? I'm very good, Wanda. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for letting us know about this wonderful tribute this evening. I mean, it's not like you're saying, oh, it was. Well, you missed it. I mean, we've already missed a whole doggone exhibit um, (laughs) because it opened last year. And I'm like, what? Um, Yeah, but at least we're not missing this this wonderful um, tribute this evening. Um, um, On the, uh, to, you know, Ronnie uh, Goodman, who, who, you know, just made his transition, you know, the end of last year, and um, and you are, um, I don't know, you're not you're not presenting. I didn't notice your name in the list of people, but uh, I know you were a good friend of, of Ronnie Goodman, and uh, you are Art Hazelwood, and the uh, the exhibit is uh, PS One uh, New York Museum of Modern Art, and um, I think I don't know Pacific time. Let's see, six thirty Eastern, so that's three thirty Pacific time, right? That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's the exhibition called Marking Time, Art in the mm-hmm. Age of Mass Incarceration that Ronnie Goodman is in, as well as some other artists that um, from the Bay Area, Gary Harrell's in that show as well, um, who was in San Quentin. And um, the show was actually extended until April 5th, 
uh, because of coronavirus, obviously they couldn't open. So it's up a little bit longer. But tonight, well, tonight in New York, but uh, during the day here in San Francisco, um, there will be a program called Honoring Ronnie Goodman, 6.30. So 3.30 our time in in West Coast. 6.30 to 8 p.m. Eastern time. And I'll be speaking a little bit. Um, several oh, of his cool. friends... Um, and people that he knew in various places. Uh, Ronnie was uh, was somebody who always brought the community to him and uh, left a wake of of uh, left a hole in a lot of communities. So among those communities are the uh, prison arts community, um, the the running community that built up around that in, in prison, and and outside in making art circles as well as in homeless activist circles. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And um, I was uh, trying to figure out um, to register for this evening's program, which is a free program. Uh, you can go to the uh, moma.org forward slash calendar forward slash events, and then the event number is Six nine nine eight. Again, that's um, museumofmodernart.org calendar, and I'm sure you can figure it out. It's today, <laughs> March twenty fourth. Right. So it should be pretty easy to find it because it's the thing that's happening right now. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to read film to, to to launch it off. The curator uh, Nicole Fleetwood, mm-hmm. who's uh, put together this amazing show, will speak, and then there'll be a short film. Um, about Ronnie um, that was made with Ronnie um, a few years before he passed. So that should be good to watch, too. Right, right. And Mary, um, uh, you know, publisher of San Francisco Bayview, uh, Mary Ratcliffe, was saying how, um, you know, the Bayview's relationship with uh, Ronnie goes way back. Um, He would send in um, cartoons for publication. And... um, Right. And I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how long, how long did you know, Ronnie? I know his um, his daughter is going to be at this event uh, this evening. Um, this exhibit, Marking Time, um, also um, sort of um, is sort of a a large opening of um, a book by the same title that was also um, released last year. Um, Nicole um, uh, Fleetwood, curator of the exhibition, and I think maybe two years ago uh, she was the closing uh, plenary speaker at um, Arts and Corrections, which uh, is a a conference that happens every year and it moves around the country, uh, hosted by the uh, California uh, Lawyers for the Arts, um, and uh, that's, that's Alma's uh, organization <laughs> and uh, and I'm, I'm sure you know Alma um, just like you probably know the William James Association which funds a lot of arts and corrections programs art is so That's important right, yeah. to, um, to rehabilitation and there are just so many great programs happening in California because of organizations like the William James Association um, and uh, and the, the lawyers that advocate for the arts and the artists who are teaching artists in these facilities. Yeah, and the uh, William James Association started the Arts and Corrections program in the 80s in mm. a 
a test program, and it expanded to all the prisons in the state until uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger terminated the um, arts and corrections program. But William James was able to keep it alive uh, as a nonprofit supporting the San Quentin project, and and now it's starting to spread its wings again and um, move back into the prisons. It's uh, it's an amazing uh, opportunity for people to in in prison to express their their humanity really in the in the face of a uh, military industrial um, world that they're living in daily. So I met Ronnie when I went in as a guest artist in the um, print program as mm-hmm. part of Arts and Corrections, now Prison Arts Project at San Quentin. Um, Katya McCulloch, who will be speaking tonight also, uh, she started the print program where we were making lino cut prints in prison and that's uh, where I met Ronnie. So uh, we hit it off and after he got out, uh, a few years after I started uh, working in there as a guest artist um, and he would come to my studio, we would print together many years. Oh, wow. How lovely. Yeah. I, I know that, I know that art um, center uh, right across from the, um, the guards, um, you know, where that that room, you know, that's just full of all this beautiful art paintings and and yeah. And, if you go to the website, was, you'll see that uh, painting that Ronnie did of the of the art room in San Quentin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's on the events page, uh, and I believe it's in the exhibition in New York. So mm-hmm. that's right. Nice yeah, that. yeah, I did see that. Um, and and because I I was um, a volunteer at San Quentin in the um, um, the Marin Theater um, uh, Company's um, uh, Shakespeare program, and oh, so we, we we rehearsed in that room. <laughs> and so, and as, so you as, know, as the artists were coming system. out, we were going in. <laughs> right, that little tiny room just housed so much mm-hmm. art, so many different things happening. Right, musicians exactly, used exactly. the room, theater used the room. And <laughs> Hard to explain how tiny that room is and how much happens there. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so continue what you were saying, and then I'll read your bio afterwards uh, about you know you and Ronnie working together, um, you know, in your studio. Talk about that. Well, uh, when he got out, he he'd been doing a lot of lino cut printing, like I said, and there's not really uh, it, it's. It's possible to do it by hand, but it's a lot easier if you have a press. And so I invited him to come and come to my studio, and it was it was just a lot of fun. We would meet usually once a week, um, and at the time he's he was still living on the street. Um, he got out of prison, and you know got you know because of parole, he was on the uh, street of the most expensive city in the world, and hard to find housing. So. But he had these twin passions, making art and running, and the two of them kept him kept him going and kept him excited. And um, so we worked on several projects together uh, in the studio. Some sometimes we had um, political uh, projects that we worked on. We worked together on uh, after Occupy started. Um, in 2011, we started a uh, 
making prints for the Occupy movement, Ronnie did a print called The Birth of Occupy. And mm-hmm. uh, they were surprised in New York to find out that it's actually in the MoMA collection. Uh, they didn't know that before the show went up, but uh, his print of, uh, about the Occupy movement was bought by the Museum of Modern Art uh, mm. in this portfolio of prints called Occupant. So we would we would oh. work on various political actions together, and um, and he created a lot of work for the Coalition on Homelessness and for a group called Western Regional Advocacy Project, which is another homeless rights organizing group. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, let me read let me read your bio, um, but I wanted to preface that with I really really liked. Um, your tagline: Artists impress, uh, impress uh, a ri- and in- yeah, and uh, instigator. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that's that's great. <laughs> we want art to do yeah. all of those things. <laughs> and uh, in your bio, you write. Oh, for over 25 years, Art Hazelwood has created politically charged prints, working with dozens of organizations, from arts organizations to unions to grassroots movements. Over that period, he has been consistently involved with homeless rights, including working with the Western Regional Advocacy Project as the artist organizer. In 2017, he received the Artwork as Revolution Award from the Coalition on Homelessness. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, He taught at the San Francisco Art Institute, where he was involved in union bargaining for adjunct faculty and was elected shop steward. Also at the Art Institute, he was part of the founding of the San Francisco Poster Syndicate, which has brought together political poster makers from various levels of experience and backgrounds to create art for activist organizations. From 2008 to 2018, he was a regular guest artist at San Quentin State Prison in the printmaking class of Katya McCullough. McCulloch? Is that how you say it? Okay. Uh, With Stephen Fredericks, he organized the Art of Democracy, a coalition of over 50 exhibitions taking place across the United States in the lead-up to the 2008 presidential elections. He is the author of Hobos to Street People, Artists, Artists, Artists <laughs> Responses to Homelessness from the New Deal to the Present. I know that book from Freedom Voices. His artwork is in the collections of the Library of Congress, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and many other institutions. He shelters, I like this last part, he shelters in San Francisco. <laughs> and, and, and your website, for those who want to read more and see the work, which is really phenomenal, Art Hazelwood, H-A-Z-E-L-W-O-O-D.com. Okay. Okay, got you that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that is part of my art <laughs> instigator impresario. The impresario part yes. is, is trying to organize artists' exhibitions and mm. that sort of thing. So. Yeah. So, um, so talk a little bit more about about your friend and um, and your work with um, and for as an advocate for people that are under and unhoused. 
Well, when Ronnie got out, he was uh, he was sleeping next to the main library and did a print. I remember he did a print of yeah. of the main library. Uh, he would reflect on his life wherever he was, and it's not that common, really, for artists in really difficult situations to reflect on their life in their artwork. Um, a lot of the artists in San Quentin, their art is about, for obvious reasons, about what they're dreaming of on the outside or a way, you know, uh, not about what's happening to them in prison, about what prison is about. Ronnie, even in prison, did art about being in prison. And when he was on the street, he made art about being on the street. And it sounds kind of like obvious that people would do that, but it's it was rare. And Ronnie was rare in that. And one of the things that he did that was so beautiful about his experiences was that he he looked at the reality, but he also, if you look at his work, there's always this element of transcendence in it. Often, often jazz musicians represent transcendence for him. So when he did a piece called No More Homeless Deaths um, for a vigil that's held every year on the the longest night of the year in December to to draw attention to homeless deaths on the street. Um, he did this print, and there, it's it's where he slept underneath the bridges, um, underneath the freeway, represented. And above, hovering in the in the sky above, are two jazz musicians. Um, but the border is represented with bed bugs and biohazard signs and rats. So he always lived in this world where he represented both the, the struggle, the hard situation, and the transcendence of art, I think, is most important. He used, uh, he, he used African symbols in, in the borders of some of his traditional African symbols in some of the borders of his work as well. And I think... Um, that's what always made his work special in a way because it, it had a kind of um, hard life, but this beautiful aspect to it. So yeah. one of the, um, one of the last things that we did together was after George Floyd was murdered, um, Ronnie had made a, a lino cut, uh, hands up, don't shoot. And we, we used that lino cut. So he had done that a couple of years earlier, but we used that lino cut to make a poster that we printed um, SFPD out of the TL. It was used by the Coalition on Homelessness to uh, at protests after George Floyd's murder. So that was only about a month before Ronnie passed. It was really uh, fitting, I think, that his work was used in this um, activist way even even towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, I don't know, one would think that given, um, you know, sort of how, how well-known and well-respected um, Ronnie's work was that he would have had housing. Um yeah, um, it, Ronnie had a tough life. I mean, Ronnie had his demons as well. 
and um, he was out of prison for a few years. I don't remember exact date, but then his son was murdered on the street. And that really set him back, of course. Um, emotionally, it set him back a lot. And it was hard for him, I think, to to be able to hold it together after that. So mm. he had a lot of support, and even living on the street, he had a community that he built around him. I mean, I was there when he, uh, shortly after he died, and uh, standing with his body, and construction workers would come up and say, I just talked to him yesterday. People who were so touched by him, mm-hmm. people who were so connected to him. He did He did attract people as a community, um, but he, like I said, he had his own struggles. And part of that was, uh, yeah, he, he had a lot of difficulty keeping, keeping housed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that film um, that uh, was set in Los Angeles uh, about this really uh, talented, phenomenal musician, uh, Jamie Foxx, uh, portrayed him in a film. And you, you know the film I'm speaking of? I, yeah, the cellist, right? It was a cello player. Yeah, yeah, he was a cellist. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um yeah, he um he had he had a lot of challenges um staying housed um even though even though he had access to to housing. Um it just it just wasn't working because of of mental um, you know, illness was affecting that, not his artistry, but just sort of him being able to fit in to um to sort of the the paradigm that society right. says that we need to fit into. And there and it's there is true. no space for those people that don't fit there. Like, okay, well, if you don't fit this paradigm, well, you can still be safe and do your thing over here. Because <laughs> we can all get along, you know. Uh, everyone doesn't have to be a prototype of another person necessarily. We just want you to be safe. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, the, work out. the model of housing first, where mm-hmm. people's um, addiction issues or mental health issues aren't aren't secondary to housing. Uh, it, mm-hmm. that's, that works better for many people. And, and a lot of times there's a kind of, um, well, you have to jump through this hoop to get into housing, but it's actually being in housing that would help you jump through that hoop. It would help you be in a position where you could sustain housing. Um, so with a model of, of putting people in housing first, it's, it helps a lot with people who, as you say, don't necessarily fit into the mold that society wants them to fit into. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, are you, um, a San Francisco native and, um, uh, was Ronnie also a San Francisco native? Did you all grow up here? I, I'm not. I've I've been here since the early '90s, but uh, Ronnie was mm-hmm. born here. Um, mm-hmm. His whole family uh, is from the Bay Area. His daughter, who will be speaking tonight, uh, I believe she lives back east somewhere. But um, mm-hmm. 
But yeah, his uh, his auntie raised him here in the East Bay. Um, he has a lot of stories of growing up. One of the, my favorite stories of him uh, in school was that he was uh, he was a wild kid, and the principal of the school also saw that he had a lot of focus on art and just took him out of class and assigned him to draw the school for the, uh, the yearbook for the school. And he just seemed, he said he was just so happy just to be given this assignment. And, and you know, this principal saw his, his, his kind of uncontrollable energy, but also saw his great skill and just put him in a direction that he fit into, which was really a nice thing, which would have been maybe a better model for mm-hmm. for Ronnie all throughout life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do as as educators. Sort of, yeah. you know, sort of help 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 that inner genius develop. But first, you have to recognize it. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, that's one of the beautiful things about the Arts and Corrections program, the Prison Arts Project, is um, there are so many people who come into these classes that um, were never given an opportunity to be expressive. Some of them have seen come in and say, oh, I can't draw, and I can't draw, and I can't do this. and then, mm-hmm. But they want to produce something for their niece or, or nephew, mm-hmm. you know, a, a Valentine's card or something. And so everybody can do this. And they learn to do it, and they learn to love it, and they learn to just feel like something empowering about creating something themselves. So it's a beautiful thing to see uh, what people what people can do who think they can't do it, especially with creative mm-hmm. arts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How how old was uh, was Ronnie? He he was uh, he did just turned sixty when he passed away, like the week mm-hmm. before. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, are any kinds of uh, trusts set up, um, you know, in his honor or anything like that um, for people that are interested in assisting, you know, with you know arts um, in um, in the under and unhoused community, you know, organizations that. He supported um, anything like that that you could share. Well, I think you know when he when he was at his peak as a runner, he he ran a half marathon, uh, the, the San Francisco Marathon. He ran a half marathon as a fundraiser okay. for a hospitality house. Okay. And yeah. as a homeless runner, he he raised over ten thousand dollars for a hospitality house. I mean, it's a pretty good awesome. sign of his generosity. That he gave that money to Hospitality House, raised that money for Hospitality House. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, was homeless himself at the time. Mm-hmm. So Hospitality House has a community arts program that Ronnie, when he first got out, would uh, go to the community arts program. It's on mm-hmm. Market Street. It's uh, yeah. completely free, completely open to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Even during COVID, they were they were operating because a lot of these people uh, that they serve have have a lot of difficulty with uh, being a, uh, you know living in a situation where they're in congregate housing anyway. So mm-hmm. getting them into a place where they can feel comfortable making art, allowing people to do that is really a wonderful thing. So 
that was uh, that would probably be the best place for people mm-hmm. to contribute anything. Hospitality house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hospitality House is awesome. Yeah, my friend Charles Blackwell, um, he, uh, yeah, you know Charles. (laughs) Yeah, Charles is awesome. Great artist. Uh, Yeah, he is phenomenal. And, yeah, great writer, too. It's like, uh. (laughs) Oh, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, Hospitality House, definitely, definitely a wonderful, worthy organization. That's, That's really great. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, in our closing moments, um, tell us again, um, did you get a chance to go to New York and see this exhibit? Um, no, I wish I could. Off- you know, <laughs> Ronnie actually knew about it. Ronnie okay. um, was going to be out, uh, taken out there and um, mm-hmm. be on a panel, and it would have been a great moment for him. He did see the book. The book had already come out before he passed. Cool. Um, so, um, you know, he was pretty excited about going to New York. Uh, I didn't believe him at first, I must say. <laughs> um, but it, it turned out to be true. So, and, uh, mm-hmm. I know that, um, he would, he would have been very excited to be and very honored that everybody would come together, but it was really, I think today's, uh, event for him is really just a, a, a kind of a continuation of the community that he, um, despite his demons, despite his difficulties, he, he always brought people to him and, and he had such a great smile. People always responded to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell the audience a little bit more about Nicole Fleetwood, um, who is the curator of this exhibition and, and marking time, just the whole idea of marking, you can think about it in different ways, marking as insofar as leaving your mark and, and you know, making a mark as opposed to just letting the time just pass. Um, could you tell, tell our audience a little bit about, about the exhibition that, that Ronnie's work is a part of and, um, and that, you know, that's honoring him this evening? Again, um, the time is 6.30 Eastern Time, 3.30 Pacific Time. And the way that you register um, for this virtual event is you go to the calendar uh, for MoMA, M-O-M-A dot O-R-G, calendar events, and it should be right there at the top. But if you have a pen, you can jot it down. It's event number 69983. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's it's a uh, survey of art from uh, people who've been incarcerated, and um, marking time, as you say, is this idea that um, that people are doing their time in prison, but they're also making their mark at the same time. And subtitle of the show, "Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration," I think speaks to the whole uh, story of how. This, this country incarcerates such huge numbers of people. What is the legacy that's left of those people? What, 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 can, um, what can we learn from what people have put out there in the world? Arts and Corrections has lots of different programs, as you know, like the theater program and the, uh, the music program. But um, the visual arts leaves a leaves a record of what people have experienced and what they've dreamed and what they've 
what they've struggled with um, in prison. So I think it's it's really a timely and important exhibit to see. It's it's a shame that for most of the run of the exhibition, it was not really accessible because of COVID. Uh, but the book is out, and there's a lot to lot to see. And Nicole Fleetwood has been everywhere uh, talking about the book, and uh, she's been on a lot of um, different educational panels, and it's been great to hear a voice advocating for people who are often left voiceless. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, certainly so, yeah. it's really important work. And, and just the whole idea of, of the power of art, I mean, it's just there's just there's just no words for it, which I mean, unless you're a poet <laughs> or right. or a writer, um, they're really, um, gosh, the depth of the experience. I mean, you can't imagine. I mean, some of us, what does it mean to be locked up, and then and then to be locked up in a situation where people are bringing in something that could kill you, and you can't see it because it's a germ. Like, oh. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But so then, many people, but then other things. Uh, Sorry. Mm-hmm. I was just saying that uh, the programs now are all by mail. So doing a mm-hmm. an art class, Katya is is basically oh, it's a correspondence nice. course. You know, uh, it's it's very difficult to be able to keep keep in touch with people through the mail in uh, mm-hmm. in prison. But that's that's how the teachers are keeping keeping going with mm-hmm. this during during COVID. Oh, that's great, yeah, because I know um, all the programming shut down, and I know um, uh, our assembly person, um, Bonta, Rob Bonta, is, you know, right now there's a bill around people having being able to get their mail and being able to have family visits um, and more phone calls and video calls and, you know, just trying to keep those connections because... There, there are none. There haven't right. been for over a year now, and all of the classes have stopped. Everything has stopped. Uh, so that's really, really great um, that you know, in in some form, um, the teachers have been able to stay in touch with with their students. That's great. That's great. Yeah, because yeah, you know, Mel can sit in that mail room for months. Months. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, it's always great to see you around and to see your name, but to actually speak to you is like, oh, my gosh. And I just want to lift the name of Casper Banjo up and say Amashe to his wonderful memory, our our dear friend in common. Yeah, Casper. Casper Banjo was another great artist who passed too soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. He was shot by the police in Oakland, California. (sighs) Ah. Yes, that was a real tragedy. Yes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing you tonight. Or, actually, it's not tonight for us. It's after this afternoon in a few hours. And, uh, and, and you know, whenever, you know, you, you want to come back on and talk to us about um, about your work and what you're doing and, um, and various um, organizations and initiatives, you know, uh, you know what you're, um, what you're agitating on, you know, at whatever moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you you have an open invitation. 
Thank you very much. Very nice talking to you, Wanda. Good talking to you, too. I look forward to seeing you this evening. And my condolences on the loss of your dear friend. Thank you. All right. You take good care. Peace and blessings. Bye. So while we wait for our next guest to join us, I am going to um I'm gonna play this song um that um our sister uh <laughs> Senna um told us about. It's entitled hmm, is Jeanette uh Denku and it's uh I uh Dahabi. Sana 
Wow, your your team is just star-studded. Oh, my goodness. Um, and it's a short film. Um, however, I think you said, what is it, seven or eight minutes? You just do, you just tell a whole, a few stories in, in, in a real small yeah. sense of time. But so thoroughly, I'm sure you're going to probably get a lot of accolades because you're kind of externalizing um, you and uh, the co-writer, uh, Sarah, maybe some things that people are thinking, but not not out loud. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad that you said some accolades because we just got um, admitted to the uh, a film festival last night. So this is a new development. Uh, nice. I put it in for the uh, screenplay, and um, mm-hmm. we we were officially selected to uh, the Florida Internet uh, International Florida Screenplay Challenge. Uh, so that's cool. uh, that's a, a big excitement for the project, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, hopefully there's going to be some more coming soon. But, um, yeah, you know, getting back to the title and, and the uh, context of, you know, the film, um, we we took something that uh, thought that's um, very popular in the lexicon of black and brown culture, and um, we kind of flipped it on its head. And we, we wanted to tell a story about um, a new age love story. Um, and and how things kind of get misconstrued in in our social media age. Yeah, yeah, I was just sort of thinking about um the whole thing around around sheltering in place and um love in a pandemic. What does that look like? Um had you thought about that? Uh, <laughs> um was this film in production before the pandemic, or did it happen during the pandemic? Insofar as the writing, uh, that's, that's a great question. Uh, we actually wrote this film probably about a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. My guy Kareem Gedra, he had kind of an idea. Uh, he he works in a barber shop, and and he kind of is a witness to like a lot of the chatter that goes on in the barber shop. And, you know, he's an inspiring filmmaker. So, you know, one day after, you know, finishing up a, a former project of mine, we were just kind of talking and he was just like, yo, Jay, I really want to get into the film industry and I have a lot of ideas. And we started just talking about, you know, just in general generic ideas that he had. And and he told me about, you know, how people in barbershop really talk about, you know, this and that and sometimes it involves women and sometimes it involves men and it's good it's bad and you know everything in between uh and anyway uh so we uh we went out had uh a meal and just started writing down some notes and it sat like that for a long time probably about a year um and then that's when um sarah anders um the other co-writer came on and we we all linked up one night and kind of had a writing session, and we we revisited this idea. And at the end of that night, we had a six or seven page draft of you know what would eventually become thought. Hmm. Wow, that is pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's you know this film stuff is you know it starts, it stops, and you know continues. You never know where it's going to go. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me tell our audience a little bit about you. Um, besides being the director and co-writer and producer of this this film, um, you are a filmmaker from the Chicagoland area, and so interesting. Um, our first guest this this morning, um, uh, Senna, is is in Chicago. <laughs> um, you attended Eastern Illinois University and studied radio, television, and film in the communications department. After college, you landed a job with legendary filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola and worked as his prop master on uh, Coppola's traveling stage performance, Wine, Daydreams, and Memories. Since then, uh, you have continued your film journey by working on projects for Discovery, Facebook, Netflix, and other uh, outlets. To date, your own personal films have been selected to over 40 film festivals and winning several times. So you don't, in this very, very brief bio, you don't tell us about any of your films, so other films. So drop us some names out and tell us where we can look at them. Yeah, so um, if you um, Google uh, Jason Johnson, and Jason is spelled J-A-Y-S-O-N, my film page will show up, and uh, I'm housing all of my previous films that I've done on my film page. And um, some of those are, uh, you know, dating way back to when I didn't know anything about filmmaking. Uh, mm-hmm. The first film I made was called Black Rogers. It was a black exploitation um, off of Buck Rogers. The I don't know when that show came out, 70s or 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I made a black exploitation off of that. Um, I made a uh, drama called Redress. Uh, it deals about the alt-right and uh, uh, how black America fits in that. Um, I did a film about suicide prevention called Lifeline. Um, and then I also did a film about um, people that talk to inanimate objects called All Who Are Weary. Wow. So, and, yeah, I've done quite see... a few projects. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't I didn't find what you were telling me, but at the um IMDb I saw um yeah, I saw your Black Rogers. Um but I also see you in Sorry to Bother You and Blind Spotting. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. What would you uh, do there? <laughs> I know those two films. Oh, okay. Uh so on on Sorry to Bother You, um I was a uh I worked in the camera department, and uh, I was, uh, I guess my official title was camera assistant, but um, I held the monitor uh, so that Boots Riley, the director, could have his own little video screen to see what was going on on camera. Um, I also helped the camera department whenever they needed to switch lenses, Then I was the person that did that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I was really blessed to work uh, directly with, uh, Boots Riley, who I think is an amazing director and, uh, you know, overall just a fantastic guy. Um, and then on blind spotting, um, I, I also work in location management. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I help to uh, secure some locations for blind spotting. And uh, we, we retrieved uh, a lot of the video sequences in the opening of the film. I was behind that. Uh, so that's 
that's really a good feeling when you could see your work kind of come to fruition on on a film project. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I found your long page. Wow, you have you you have a a, a significant <laughs> resume. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I see why um your friends will want to team up with you on a project. And uh um, Yeah. Yeah, one of your team members has just joined us. Good morning. How are you? Hi. I'm good. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're well. Great. We're well. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Um, tell me, um, I, I don't know your number by heart or your voice, so <laughs> tell us who's joining Oh, us. yeah, no worries. Um, I'm Sarah Anders. I, I worked, I've worked with Jason twice before. I worked oh, okay. with Jason on his um, film Redress, and I was mm-hmm. the costumer on that and then um yeah we got together on thought um him kareem and i over some tacos and a few beers um created the thought script (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) right yeah Um, and sarah you're from uh, i'm going to read a little bit of your bio um you are a filmmaker from oregon who now resides in san francisco the san francisco bay area and again, you know, you mentioned that you started as a wardrobe stylist, and that's a really important role in in film because, you know, we really notice how people look and what they're wearing. <laughs> it sort of like Absolutely. makes the character, right? <laughs> yeah, and it helps people also identify with the character as well, which is really important. Mm-hmm. Or or not. Sometimes there are characters that yeah. we can't identify <laughs> with. <laughs> Which yeah. is also equally important. <laughs> yeah, so on yeah. um on our recent film thought, um, I was able to like I said, I was able to write with Jason and Kareem, which was great because this is the first time that I've actually been able to write something and, you know, see it come to fruition. So I'm very grateful mm-hmm. for that. Um and also, um I was uh I helped produce it cast it. I was the first assistant director on it. So I had a lot of uh, a lot of roles on it, but it was great. It, it turned out well. I think we got all the right people, you know, to be a part of it. And um, it really was like a community effort where all of us, you know, we all put our time, effort, and energy um, into this project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so talk a little bit about your team um, besides the two of you who and, and the other writer. Um, talk about some of the other members of your team um, besides, hopefully Phoenix will be able to join us, um, Phoenix Rose, uh, who is the uh, the lead actress, and that's an important role. <laughs> I know you're not you're, you're not giving away any any secrets because it's a short, and we want people to uh, to you know not miss the punchline, so to speak. So we can't tell you everything. Um, but we could talk a little bit around it, uh, around the topic of, you know, barbershops and, and stories and, you know, that, that male bonding space. And, uh, wow, and so, you know, Sarah, you're, you're like writing a story about this male bonding space. I know sometimes there are women in barbershops. Um, I don't know if that sort of messes up the kind of stories that men tell. Does it, does it Jason, um, when there's a woman in the barbershop? Does that kind of like 
Like you all have to watch your language or what happens? Does she become one of the boys? Like what happens in those spaces when there's a woman in there? <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, I heard Jason can probably tell you how the climate changes because usually when I walk in, the climate has already changed. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll say that it, it, it may get dialed down a little bit, but you, you know what's interesting, Wanda, is uh, we had a actress uh, who is actually actually a uh, real life bartender. I'm sorry, a, a, a barber that mm-hmm. I was in the film, uh, and she's oh. she's actually not just a barber, but she's a fantastic barber. Her name is uh, mm-hmm. Vice Cutter, and uh, you know when when we were on uh, set and filming, it was really amazing to me how easily she just fit in so it it didn't really to me it didn't really feel like uh a gender type of a thing it just felt like uh, a person that belonged there uh so um i will say that sometimes you know when it's like a guy dominated thing or or even a girl dominated thing i think that you know the energy is different uh but when we were filming i felt like it felt very authentic and it felt just like a barbershop, and it didn't matter if there were females there or males there or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I think it, too, um, you know, being um, that I was able to cast this, uh, pretty much like 90% of the cast I was able to call on people that I had already worked with. And it's interesting as a writer, um you kind of have, like, these thoughts and these ideas of these people, right, that you've already worked with when you're writing or when you're reading a script. And I feel like everything that we cast that I had previously worked with, you know, um, on set, was it was just perfection how everybody just fit the roles because we really wanted this to be a very authentic story. Like, we, that, was, that was the goal. And we got some really authentic people to play these roles in which they weren't so far outside of themselves. Um, so they were able to get into the character, which was great, but they were also able to bring some of their own skills to the table, you know, which was also really, really great. We had um, Quinea. She was um, our another one of our co-stars, Quinea Love Jones. Um, she was supporting for Phoenix, and Quinea Love Jones had done uh, support for me as an actress in the film A Hundred Blocks. So I knew that she would be great at a supporting role, which is actually kind of hard mm-hmm. to find. You know, we had Adrian Marcel as our lead man, and, and he's just amazing when he comes to the table. And, you know, Phoenix, and then we had Arion, and, you know, like he said, Victoria Vicecutter, she works at um, Beast Mode Barbershop, you know, that's uh, Marshawn Lynch's um, shop in Oakland. And so it was just, it was really great to be able to see them, um, you know, and give them these, these unique opportunities to shine as well. And they brought it when it came to the characters, like, they really made these characters come to life. Wouldn't you say, Jason? I definitely say so. You know, I was, I was very happy with uh, the, the cast and just uh, the team in general. So, um, you know, whenever I look at any type of film, it's it's always a uh, – it takes a community to do it. So, um, you know, I'm always happy to be a part of that community and, and just that process in general. So, yeah, I'm just very happy. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know if Jason is being modest or if he told you, but Jason was actually um, also one of the executive producers on this film. And so, you know, without that, uh, we can't make our films, right, without the money. So that's also um, really important. I think another um, great thing about this um, specifically and um, what I do as a producer is we make sure that we have black and brown and minority faces represented. This was an all-minority crew in front of and behind the camera, which is kind of unheard of and is a very different thing. You know, we made sure that when we did catering and everything that we did, we did our best to support minority-owned businesses, local businesses. And I think as a producer, you know, that's my give back to the community to make sure that, you know, when we are filming, we're hiring people that are black and brown and minorities um, in places behind the set, in front of the camera, but also to support our community businesses. And I think when it comes to Jay, uh, Kareem, and I, we all felt that that was very important. And it was really great to put a spotlight on Vallejo and kind of show, like, all the beautiful places and and things that Vallejo has to offer, um, which is great because Kareem and I uh, reside in Vallejo. So that was also, everybody talks about the Bay, but very few people talk about Vallejo. (laughs) Oh, people talk about Vallejo. Vallejo used to be um, Antioch before Antioch was Antioch. (laughs) Antioch was farmland. And people would go to Vallejo to to move on up. <laughs> oh, and yeah, yeah. I don't know if you all were living in the Bay at that time, but yeah, Vallejo was the spot, and and now it's not. <laughs> right. Um, but I but I remember when that's where you went. You didn't have to go like all the way to Fairfield or all the way to Antioch. You just went to Vallejo, and that was like moving on up. Mm. You know, you get a house. You know, you could live in the suburbs, but you were around black people. Um, right. It wasn't all black at that time, but now it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting that Vallejo is actually, um, I think two or three years ago, it's the number one most diverse city in the entire nation, which a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, don't realize. I think Vallejo is, um, you know, when you see the sign coming into Vallejo, it says a city of opportunity. Um, and I just, that's, that's just how I've always seen it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But last, you know, way back when, you know, um, it was, it was, it was the city of opportunity, but it was also a city of, you know, where you know, people of African descent were doing very well. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and sort of moving away from some of the, the more dense kind of, uh, kind of discrimination and and problems that happen when um when it's a dense population of black folks and you know around opportunity around police use of excessive force all those things you know oh, profiling yeah, well, you know all that stuff that. you know yeah, yeah yeah oh wow that's great so so it's shot in in Vallejo okay nice nice um yeah. do you want to do you want to talk a little bit more about your cast or if you kind of like, because I was noticing, um, I hope Phoenix joins us because I think I've had Phoenix on my radio show before. I think she was in a production called Race um, uh, at the San Francisco, um, gosh, what's the name of the organ, uh, theater? Um, I can't think of the name of the theater, but um, it was uh, um, it was last year and it was um, – uh, 
it was it was a virtual um, production of of the um, of the uh, the play, and and she she played mm. the lead in, in that particular play, one of the female lead, the only only woman lead, uh, in 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 that particular production. I'm like, oh, it's so nice to talk to her again. Um, but I was wondering, um, did you want to? Uh, speak about any others but i was noticing um uh, sarah that you your your and uh jason's paths have crossed because in 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 um projects um not ant-man and the wasp necessarily um um but you but us us you know that film um uh yeah the scary film really mm-hmm. <laughs> i want to go back to that let's 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 bracket that for a second Oh man, I cannot watch that film ever again. It was too scary. Um, <laughs> I don't think I can watch the other one again either. Um, Get out. Yeah, oh, those those films are the kind of like, oh, this is too real. This is too probable. Oh my gosh. Anyway, <laughs> and I guess that's what what you want to do in 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 film, like you know, sort of like, you know, put us in the space because you know, even if it's. Um, uh, if it's sci-fi or if it's horror or if it's you know um narrative if you can you can make a person believe it to the point where they can't see it again you've done it um but you also <laughs> I, I see <laughs> uh sorry to bother you um i saw 100 blocks that's awesome it's an awesome film oh did you the so amazing you saw me on screen then yeah i did i I'm acted like, in 100 blocks i know that's what, that's, I, I know that's what i'm reading um like that was a great film. Yeah, Thank it was you. awesome. Yeah, I hope it's available. I hope some of these things that you all have done, uh, both you, uh, Sarah and Jason, yeah, I hope some of these films are available. A Hundred Blocks is on Amazon right now. So. Oh, that's oh, super. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, Jason, are yeah. any of yours on Amazon? Uh, there's some projects that uh, I've, uh, produced on Amazon. Um, I want to say Neighbor is on Amazon, and oh, nice. okay. I got I got to look at what I've done. Sometimes I just forget. <laughs> oh, it's you've done uh, a heck of a lot. You can't so forget. True. It's too much to hold in your mind. You've done a lot. <laughs> yeah, you have so, done a lot. Uh, there is there's a um, a lot a lot of the films that I've worked on. Uh, I'm I'm lucky that they had a theatrical release. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool, and 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 a lot of these films, although I don't really list it, I'm all, they always ask me to be in the films, and I'm always like an extra or something. So uh, okay. if you look really hard and sorry to bother you, you'll see me in that film. And oh, where uh, are you? I'm sorry say, to bother you. Where are you? What you yeah, say? I'm. I'm uh, so what scene? the the <laughs> scene when when he comes out of the bar, um, I'm wearing like this big yellow raincoat. And, uh, you know, I get probably good three or four seconds of screen time. And I'm just like, that was something that, you know, I, I didn't plan. You know, it's just something that they said, hey, you, you know, and, and said, can you step in here? So, yeah, I, I'm in that. And, uh, <laughs> okay. Let's see here. Um, and, and a lot of people don't know this, but I started as an actor. And um, I was uh, – I would go to audition after audition and, you know, uh, the actor's uh, journey is very difficult because there's a lot of times that you won't get selected in between the times that you do get selected. So 
I was kind of frustrated with that, and I wanted to originally up my chances of getting on screen. So that's when I started to write things, and I would always put myself into the mix so that I could always have a guaranteed spot. But Mm -hmm. uh, as I got better at making uh, films, then I said that there's better actors than me that can, uh, you know, perform the job. So that's kind of how that came to be. But, um, yeah, you can see, uh, uh, getting back to your question, I think you can see uh, La Mission. I uh, worked at, on that as a talent. Uh, mm-hmm. Blind spotting, uh, sorry to bother you. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you go to all the um, discovery things, such as um, I Almost Got Away with the Wisest Knives. I've done a significant amount of producing on those shows, and those are uh, on Discovery and or online as well. Mm, Nice, nice, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking we could go back to, you know, sort of the, um, you know, sort of representation in the the, uh, industry and how I'm not seeing myself, or I'm seeing myself, but, they're not seeing me, <laughs> so I'm have to like. Well, let me just yeah. write it myself and put myself in it, put people in it. You know, let me tell my own stories. That is so true. Um, you know, the entrepreneur artist, and really happy. You know, Jason and uh, Sarah, that you all are, you know, doing this because otherwise, will we ever see, um, you know, this kind of a piece? Probably not. No. And you, well, you might see it, but you won't see it in um, a real way, right? You won't see it in in a in the lens of which we can give, which is, you know, our experiences. Like, it's funny when we were writing this. Like, I I feel like definitely put myself into that lead character, right? I've definitely mm-hmm. felt like her before, where I'm in love one day and not the next day based on how I'm treated. You know what I mean? So I think that when it's so important to have these, you know, authentic stories, Kareem is a barber, you know, so Kareem came up with this entire idea and Jason and I, and, you know, we all got together and we were able to put it on paper, but yeah, it's a different, it's a different feel when it's spoken from the person who actually has been there and has done that, right. Has had these experiences. Um, and yeah, this thought is so, it's so great because it's not just about the male's perspective. It's not just about the female's perspective. Like we, we showcase kind of both and how, you know, men and women, you can have people around you cheerleading you into one way, or you can have people around you kind of hating on you and trying to steer you in another direction as well, just based on their own perspective and where they're at. Right. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of like very deep hidden gems in thought that, that we all worked on really well. There's a lot of messages in there about women and sexuality and, you know, when's the last time you've seen a big, beautiful black man be seen as vulnerable? And it's little things like that that are very important. Like, we don't get to see our big, beautiful black men be vulnerable in moments on camera. They're not allowed. And so we allowed that space and we got the perfect actors. And, you know, to some people, this may just be like a little, you know, a little short film. It's entertaining. But you know, for those of us that watch this with a different perspective, it, it's it's a lot deeper than that, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was just thinking, um, uh, I don't know, when I, when I read, when I read the, uh, the synopsis, I was just thinking uh, some of the themes that are running through here are, you know, misogyny, uh, objectification of women, um, you know, and also sort of the different standards of women, like a guy of can course. have, of course. have you know, you know, he he doesn't have to be, well, he's not. He doesn't have to be a Madonna, <laughs> and I don't know if there's a male oh, right. equivalent to Madonna, but the Madonna, you know, the the woman on the pedestal that is pure and holy, and just you know, and only God has access, <laughs> and and she she bears gods, right, um, or or the God. And uh, no, no, no disrespect for for people who are Christian, and uh, and this is this is the Lent season, so people are fasting, and you know the resurrection is coming up in a week, yeah, yeah, in a week or two, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, but that whole idea, and you know, speaking of resurrection, you know, sort of being reborn, but who's who, you know, who has the right to judge anybody? Um, but right. the whole idea that women, um, you know. Their sexuality is is bracketed and owned by society. And if you express yourself sexually, and we're all sexual beings. There's nothing wrong with being a sexual person because Absolutely. that's a part of who we are. You know, pleasure. Absolutely. You know, all that stuff. <laughs> and and then, oh, okay. Now I want to get married. I want to like, I want to like commit. So who's around that meets that particular expectation? Not not thinking. Well, do I meet that expectation? Expectation. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. No, a hundred thousand percent. That's you know, mm-hmm. and like I think the the great you know, Jason is really the writer, like as far as format and like all this goes. Jason was definitely the lead on this, um, and writing this story. And at first when it started mm-hmm. off as Kareem's idea, it was a very like it was it was a story from based on a man about a man. And it it evolved into a story about a woman. And, you know, I think the most important thing, too, is just the duality of these characters and to understand that each of us, we're not just one thing, right? We we may have all of these other, you know, we may have a little angel in us. We may have a little thought in us. We may have a little bit of this, a little bit of that in us. And it's not just, you know, one story to be told. And we could be making judgments and assumptions on people based on one tiny bit of information, which does not represent them as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that it's important to uh, know that uh, thought is not extended to uh, either race. It could be both. And but you know, when you when you think about it, you know, you should really remove that term just in general, just because of what we've been talking about as far as sexuality and just. Um, we are all sexual beings and, uh, you know, pleasure feels good. That's why, you know, we, we would want to participate in it. But, uh, yeah, I, I would love to have the viewers know that uh, thought is not a derogatory term directed towards women. It also involves men as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but nobody thinks man when you say that. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, not they, at all. They and not they at all. And this is this is so like a male-centered conversation. Uh, we're in a barbershop, and and that is what is said, you know, uh, about women who you don't take home to meet mama and dad if you have a dad or, you know, sister. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like she is not a model. <laughs> you 
So <laughs> she's not a paragon. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know, um, well, you'll you'll definitely have to see. Um, you'll have to see it and watch it all take place. I feel like it's a. Uh, um, yeah, you'll, you'll have to see it and watch it all take place. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's what they were talking about. But yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, what do you call it? The, the, um, the title of this, it was definitely, you know, we kind of went back and forth and back and forth on different things. And, um, and it landed there to catch your attention, you know, and this is also, you know, in our culture, this is a word that is that is used, and it's mostly used for women. You know, it can also be used for men as well in spaces probably where women are talking about men. Um, but, yeah, it's like, you know, it's not just the barbershop. We have the barbershop. We have a black-owned restaurant. You know, we have um, houses. So it's, it's kind of like it shows it shows both perspectives on this thing, um, which is interesting. And it's just both perspectives for this one story, right? Because, I mean, obviously with any other story, it would be completely varied. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and I was just thinking, you know, sort of uh, having an acronym, you know, instead of saying, um, you know, that hole over there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you, you say thought, and so thought, I'm thinking T H O U G H T, right? Mm. And T H O U G H T. So, so you exactly. think thought, like think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with thought. Thought is a good thing, <laughs> and I think that's what's happening in the minds of, uh, you know, the protagonists, you know, the male protagonists, <laughs> and the surprise protagonist, and the other protagonists, you know, because there are a few you know, characters, you know, that that people are going to remember um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and what they do. And so, yeah, I think I think your acronym is, because I, I, I didn't know how to pronounce it. When you said it, it's like, oh, that's why they named it that, because it, mm-hmm. it, it makes us it think, you know, like how our thoughts shape our behavior and the outcome. You know, you can miss out if you have the wrong thought, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and you're just so on... mystified. I'm sure listening to this conversation we're having. <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope so. I hope everyone goes out and and gets more information about this film. Uh, we're on uh, social media at hashtag dots film, and uh, you find some more information about this film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, any sure. yes. Any 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 closing thoughts? Uh, literally, I was just thinking about. I was, um, you know, one of your um, one of your members of the cast is Adrian Marcel, um, who has a oh. lot of really thought provoking music yeah. videos. He's like, he doesn't make he doesn't release songs. He releases little vignettes. Mm-hmm. And 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 um, yeah, I was looking at a few of them because I wanted to play one of them, and I was like, "Oh man, language! Oh man, language!" Uh, <laughs> um, but but he, he's like, he does all these love ballads, and and uh, and a couple that I was really interested in. Uh, I, I think I shared <laughs> in an email with you, Jason. Like, oh man, darn! Um, 
you know, the one you one you the one you shared and then some that I was listening to and I'm like, Oh, I can't play that one. But um <laughs> yeah, he uh yeah, he he sings a lot about um sort of um, you know, being attracted to beautiful beautiful women and uh and uh, you know, trying really hard to 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 see the woman and you know as as she really is not necessarily as as a thing mm-hmm. to be conquered um but she's mm-hmm. running i think that's the name of that one <laughs> and then another one about how he got famous and everybody's showing up sort of reminds me of the Tupac Shakur story you know all these folks want to know you when you have money and then when you don't when it's gone it's like they are gone um but he's but yeah. he's doing really well and he's like you know, sort of like who are my real friends, and um, and I was just sort of thinking, uh, just along the sort of uh, this particular film being maybe a part of like the the hip hop kind of genre of 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 um, art, you know, sort of looking at you know, sort of some of the art that came out of that particular period of of you know when when it was the main form of art, the art form, and uh, and then. You know, sort of looking at, because you know, um, with uh, Boots, you know, he he um, he's a part. He's in that genre of of art. Um, you know, sort of kind of like using hip hop culture to to sort of um, speak truth. And and I was just thinking, um, sort of, where would you place thought in in sort of the type of um, legacy of art that you all are pulling on in in this creation as as directors and co-writers as director and co-writers uh go ahead sir yeah i feel like you know i asked john singleton this question i was like you know, as a black filmmaker, how do you tell a true story and not perpetuate the stereotype, right? And I think that that's, like, what we're all trying to do. And it was interesting because he didn't actually answer the question Roland Martin did. And um, in, in Roland Martin's way of answering questions where he says, you know, well, do you have good characters and do you have bad characters? Well, then there you go, and that's it, right? And I think... For me, every time I make a story about a minority or we show stories about minorities, it just opens up the scope of what how people have boxed us in, right? Especially um, for black people, we're in this box. Black is seen as this singular thing. And I think the more stories that we write and create with as many different characters, good, bad, ugly, and all of the above, it sort of diversifies that stereotype and that story for people who literally do not have, you know, minorities or black and brown people in their lives. Um, So I think this piece um, and every piece that I feel like I've been able to be a part of is, is the culture piece, right? Because even just the word thought, it's a reflection of, you know, um, our times today. Um, We also have, you know, we had Adrian Marcel, we have Phoenix, we have Don P., all of these people are artists. These are all musically inclined artists. So I think we're definitely at a point in time in which it's great to marry art and film together um, because you can't have one without the other, right? Like we both kind of rely on each other. But I think for me um, specifically, this is, you know, about culture. It was about the Bay Area culture specifically. We wanted to make this, you know, an ode to the Bay and to – the representation there, um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that people are able to see things through a different scope and they're able to broaden, um, to broaden a narrow perspective. That's what I feel like my art is always here to do or our art together, right? And it's all about community as well. And we literally have the, like, our entire community pour themselves into this. And, and, you know, when you have that and you have that love, especially, you know, all the guys behind the camera and everything, that we just poured our love into this. And when you have that, I feel like those are the types of, of um, shows or films that last a lifetime, you know? They, you can keep, you can continue to watch it and continue to get more and more out of it. Like I was saying, this is a short film. It's, it'll seem very surface, but the more that you watch it, you know, kind of like us or those other movies, the more that you can get out of it and understand, yeah. you know, it's, it's not always so simple. Yeah. So Sorry, guys, I know what I'm was your, What was your role in Us, um, <laughs> Sarah? What did you do in Us? Were you behind the camera, in front of the camera? I, what What were you doing? So I was lucky enough um, to be on actually the reshoot for us. So the very last, um, the very last scene where you have um, everybody in the mountainside and in and mm-hmm. in the hillside, I did that. So I was a production assistant on that, which was great actually because it was a tiny crew. Um, it was probably like a hundred extras, but um, in the director's department, it was a tiny crew. So I was asked to Jordan Peele, and he was amazing. Like, I, you know, at the start of our day, he was like, you know, he spoke to the extras, which we didn't have any principal actors, and he was like, hey, guys, this is going to be this and this is going to be that, and I just thank you for coming and, and everything like that. So, yeah, I was a production assistant, which on the totem pole is, like, at the very bottom of the totem pole. But I didn't care. Like, for me, I just, to be on the set, you know, I was invited to the premiere. So I got to go to the premiere in L.A. at the, um, was it, at Universal Studios at the theater. And so I got to watch, you know, I, I got to do that. And it was just, it was an amazing experience, you know. Just to be in that energy um, is really great. To see how the great directors do things and how they treat people and kind of, you know, the different ways that they want that film because he wanted that was actual film he didn't want to do a drone he did actually mm-hmm. like they were in a helicopter filming that scene so um it's interesting how that one scene literally took us like three days to film <laughs> so oh, yeah for me really? I, yeah being a part yeah yeah right that one mm-hmm. and it was i mean i couldn't even imagine how expensive it was just to film that one scene but yeah <laughs> that's what i hear film is expensive <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can definitely speak to that. <laughs> yeah, Jason knows firsthand, and we had so many people volunteering their services and and really working with us on this project. And still, you know, it's mm-hmm. you're it's expensive. Uh, so you all are using film as well. Uh, we we didn't uh, use the medium film uh, per se, but you know I guess oh, we're just okay. talking about it in the uh, collective sense. But um, mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how many um, you know once the film is uh, you know once the actors show up and and you film and you say that's a wrap, then you know mm-hmm. really that's the start of the marathon uh, mm-hmm. because you know all these other departments have to get their hands onto the film with 
you know, the editor and then the sound mixer, the composer, the uh, color correction, the final packaging, the uh, script role. Uh, and, you know, I'm leaving out a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, it's like um, all that stuff collectively is part of packaging the film. And, and we haven't even talked about film uh, festivals and, you know, the costs associated with that. So by, by the time, you know, a film is finished, um, you could have easily bought in the car. <laughs> so. Okay, so we're talking whether it's film um, or, or or digital, there's still a lot of costs involved in oh. the process of making a, a movie. Yeah, yeah, 100%. absolutely. If you think yeah. about it, just the sound guy, like just for the sound person, a day rate of a sound person is anywhere between seven hundred and fifty and eight hundred and fifty dollars for one day. That's just the sound. Mm. Okay. There's a little perspective yeah. for you. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's that's a great perspective. Yeah, sound is important in film unless it's a silent film. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I think I'm gonna make so a silent Jason. film next film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I know right now you all are in that process of you know the scoring and I guess the color color you know correction and oh yeah. That's- all of That's that. All Jason, mm-hmm. he's doing all the post-production um, producing. I'm actually mm-hmm. on production um, of another project that I'm doing. But, yeah, he's handling all of mm-hmm. that, all of that. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't even st- – I was like, oh, my gosh, post-production producing, that's that's a whole lot of <laughs> – Wow, nice, nice. Wow, well, well, good luck, Jason, and good okay. luck to both of you all on the script um, – uh, entry, you know, let us know if, if you know, um, I don't know, how how does it work? Do you get selected? Um, and then, I mean, what happens after this? Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to go for a uh, festival run. Um, I've, I've applied to a couple of grants, which I hope to get something um, uh, so that you can kind of offset some of the costs, but uh, presently, um, I've entered the script and the uh, poster. I think we did a, a fantastic poster, uh, also mm-hmm. shot by Kareem Gedra. Um, but uh, we're, we're entered into 34 uh, contests for that. And so the, the first one came on yesterday. So, so far, mm-hmm. we're one for one. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope that that continues. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, film festival route, and then hopefully uh, we find a buyer at the end of the of the whole journey and uh, can recoup some of the funds back and put that into the next project. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, did we cover everything? Did we um... – did you share as much as you wanted to share of of the ta- of the um of the synopsis um and how people can stay abreast of what's going on and who's in it and uh, yeah we have I, I think uh, so. we do a recap sure sorry Jason go ahead uh go go ahead uh <laughs> <laughs> No, I was just saying, um, you know, our our star would be Phoenix Rose and Adrian Marcel, and we also have Arian Johnson in there. We have Miss Quinea Love Jones. All these people can be found on Instagram. Go follow them. Uh, Don P, who has also done a ton in the music industry, he rocked with us on that. Um, 
Vice Cutter, like we were talking about, she's on Instagram as well. You can follow uh, Jason on Instagram. Jay, what's your Insta? I think it's Jay. His Insta, I think it's uh, Strike 5 Films. Um, my Insta is I am Sarah Speaks. Um, yeah, and just, just uh, use the hashtag, hashtag Thought Film, and, um, you know, follow this journey. It's definitely been a fun one so far. Yeah. Um, could I read your little brief story structure? Um, is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thought is the story of a young man named Kev who is excited to go on a date with Stacy until he hears rumors about her dating past, which force him to make a decision. Is Stacy a thought? That hole over there? This film allows us to explore duality, double standards, and the difficulties of dating in the Black, Indigenous, People of Color culture. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, congratulations. It was so wonderful talking to you both. And, um, yeah, um, we definitely have to have you on again when the film is out and people can go see it and you can tell us about all of these irons in the fire that you have actually made a pot from. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's full of money and gold, right? Um, Because that's what we want pot to be full of. Yeah, all that good stuff that spins well, like real money, not not paper. (laughs) Yeah, well, you all take really good care, Um, you know, be safe. I hope you all stay well. And, yeah, looking forward to um, uh, watching some of these films that you all have already completed that are now in circulation. And, um, you know, please stay in touch and – let me know how I can help you all, um, you know, get the word out about, about where you all are going to be uh, screening thought, you know, when, when that is um, happening. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, you're quite welcome. You take good care. <laughs> you too, Wanda. Okay, you Thank too. you so much for having Bye. us on. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. So, um, particular um, um, theater that um, that Phoenix Rose was um, uh, performed as as the lead actress uh, in Race early last year was um, Recovery Theater. Yeah, it came to me after the fact. <laughs> so we're going to let this be it because I think we've had a wonderful show and I definitely want you to have an opportunity to sort of reflect on, uh, you know, sort of our, our guests this this morning, which were simply fabulous. Um, and uh, definitely you want to make sure that you um, you go to the website for uh, Senna and uh, and check out what's going on um, at the um, Aroma Legacy Leadership and Advocacy Association um, about what's happening right now um, in Ethiopia uh, surrounding human rights uh, for Oromo, uh, Oromo people and advocates. And, uh, and then you definitely want to make sure that you don't miss the special tribute to uh, Ronnie Goodman at PS1 New York uh, Museum of Modern Art. And all you need to do is just go to the website 
to register. It's a virtual event and it's free. And they also have um, recordings of some of the previous programs that started last year around this time. So, um, yeah, uh, we might be having a rebroadcast of this same program on Friday. I'm not sure. Get ready to go on a week's vacation, um, and uh, so we're going to be replaying some of our our our, our uh, programs from the past. Um, I don't know, since 2008, probably a little more current than that. But we've had some really wonderful conversations in uh, in the. Uh, uh, in the history and the, uh, I guess the, the duration of this particular program, and really appreciate all of your uh, support um, over over these years. And if you ever want to, uh, you know, support in other kinds of ways, you know, please make sure you let us know because we are we're always open to to support to help get the word out and definitely to get more listeners. So you take good care. Um, remember to check out wandaspicks.com for all of the events, uh, particularly those uh, for those people who are interested in things that are happening that touch the lives of people of African descent and, and work that looks at art for social change and art for justice. Peace and blessings. <laughs>